and tomorrow, and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle! Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5 Let me ask you a question. In your opinion, who is the best actor in the world? Have a think about it. Take your time. Because this is a two-part question. Who is the best actor in the world? And how many people are you willing to kill to justify your choice? How many soldiers would you face down barehanded in the name of your chosen superstar? There is a correct answer, of course. Idris Elba and Zero. But at one point in history, you could get a very, very different answer. Show business can be tough. Trust me. I've been a professional comedian for 15 years. I've done big crowds, and I've done a lot more small crowds. I've seen ups. I've seen a lot more downs. I've emceed a cash converters. I've been booed off stage. I've been booed onto a stage. I have peed at a urinal trough next to Ron Jeremy. I've been threatened a few times, I've had to leave through a back door a couple of times, but that's as far as things ever got. Nothing's ever been set on fire, nobody's been shot, the military has never been called in. Look at how far we've come. Ellen DeGeneres is being cancelled because people are calling her mean. That's it. That's where the bar is. Mean. Go back a couple of hundred years and just being mean would make you comparatively as warm and kind as Keanu Reeves. If you were a celebrity in the 19th century, for you to be cancelled, you had to kill a president. That was the bar. Not threaten to kill a president, not attempt to kill a president. You needed to follow through. You needed to make it all the way to the vinegar stroke if you wanted to make the front page. Look at how far we've come. I ended up researching a lot of 19th century actors for this show, and it's amazing how many times I came across a section titled Early Career, followed by another section with Shooting, or Conspiracy Slash Sedition, or Violent Syphilis-Induced Rampage, and then a section titled Later Career. Things were different back then. Everyone knows that John Wilkes Booth shot President Abraham Lincoln in Ford's theatre. Most people know that John Wilkes Booth was an actor. What might go under the radar a bit was just how much of an actor Booth was. Booth's father was a famous actor. His brother Edwin was considered the leading Shakespearean actor of his generation. His other brother, Junius Jr., who had to have been called Juju, and his sister Asia were also actors. They were the 19th century equivalent of the Sheen Estevez family. And just like the Sheen Estevez clan, acting, drug abuse, and rampant insanity were a given. John Wilkes Booth's father, Junius Brutus Booth, was an English thespian who emigrated to the United States in 1821. 
He was by all accounts quite talented and became one of the leading actors of his generation. The poet Walt Whitman described him as, quote, the greatest histrion of modern times, end quote. <laughs> I've always wanted to do that, end quote. Whitman, being a poet, was of course allowed to get away with making up words like histrion. Although histrion may not be far off the mark, Junius Brutus Booth Sr. was histrionic on a good day. He was what I'll generously describe as a character. For any international listeners out there, you should note that when an Australian uses the word character, they're actually saying something more like unhinged sociopath who is a danger to himself and others. Hey, did you hear that Robbo got arrested last night for drink driving his car into a backyard swimming pool? Haha, <laughs> classic Robbo. What a character. Booth Sr., character, had two families the one that made the news for acting and killing presidents, and his other secret family on the other side of the Atlantic back in England. As Tyler Durden would say, he was setting up franchises. Junius Booth Sr. lived an elaborate ruse to prevent his families from ever knowing about each other, up to and including feigning illness and hiding people in closets. At one point, his sister found out about all this and then blackmailed him with that information. When I picture Junius Booth, I can't help but think of Basil Fawlty. His whole life was this madrigal of slowly unraveling schemes. Junius Booth was also a violent, alcoholic lunatic. He was known for going on week-long benders before turning up in a gutter somewhere. Other actors would refuse to work with him because he got... He got method. In a production of Richard III, he nearly killed a co-star when he decided to use a real sword. Another time, playing Othello. Yes, he was white and he played Othello. These were different times. This was before slavery was abolished and his son did kinda kill the guy who abolished it. Anyway, playing Othello, he had to be dragged off the stage by other actors because he was actually strangling the actress playing Desdemona. It is in the script, but I think Billy Shakespeare intended actors to use a bit of dramatic license there. Junius Booth Sr.'s alcoholism reached the point where stage managers would lock him in his hotel room and post an armed guard to ensure that A. He actually made it to the show, and B. He didn't kill anyone before the show, on the way to the show, or after the show. There was a Bravo team assigned to making sure he didn't kill anyone during the show. I know comedians who need a similar treatment. There was one occasion where Booth Sr. bribed a stagehand to sneak him a bottle of whiskey during his lockdown. Remember when I said Basil Fawlty? The way he worked around this, being in a locked room, was that the stagehand would hold the whiskey bottle up to the keyhole and Booth would poke a really long straw through and sip from the bottle that way. Junius Brutus Booth Sr. was also a political activist. Another thing that ran in the family. I don't mean the grassroots, boots on the ground, create institutional reforms kind of activism. I mean the Booth family way of voting. There was an instance in 1835 where Booth wrote a threatening letter to President Andrew Jackson, 
in which Booth threatened to kill Jackson if he didn't pardon some pirates captured by the U.S. Navy. The letter reading in part, quote, I'll cut your throat while you're sleeping. Poison in the ear is more Shakespearean, but I guess Booth decided to ad-lib a bit there. Nothing ever came of this, however, since Booth and Jackson were friends, and President Jackson himself was a violent, psychopathic lunatic, so they both thought it was really funny and then went and had a drink. And a quick side note here, Andrew Jackson had previously survived an assassination attempt earlier that same year. He was match fit for dodging murder. In a story interesting enough to mention, but not enough to make its own podcast, Andrew Jackson was leaving the Capitol building when his would-be assassin approached him out of a crowd, pulled out a pistol, and then pulled the trigger. The gun didn't go off. So he pulled out a second pistol and tried again. Again, the gun didn't go off. We don't know if the rule of threes would have applied here, because it's at this point that Andrew Jackson, instead of attempting to escape from the man with a neo-level of guns in his coat, had actually closed the distance to his attacker at a full sprint, and was in the act of beating the ever-loving Christ out of this guy with a walking stick. By all accounts, Jackson would have beaten him to death if it wasn't for being tackled by, of all people, Davy Crockett. That's actually what happened. If I were doing fiction, I'd be limited to stories that sound plausible. The President of the United States was stopped from killing a guy by Davy Crockett. It's disturbing just how many American presidents were out-and-out lunatics. You think Trump is unstable? Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, was literally a cowboy. He was a big game hunter in Africa. He once ghosted the Pope by deliberately avoiding the meeting. Uh, When the Spanish War broke out, he resigned his government position so that he could make his own regiment and personally fight in that war. He led an almost suicidal charge up a hill, he fatally shot a fleeing Spaniard in the back, and he is one of the four people immortalized on Mount Rushmore. He's considered one of the good ones. Junius Booth Sr. died in 1852 on a paddle steamer on the Mississippi River. His obituary isn't entirely clear on what happened, but reading between the lines, among his last words were something to the effect of, there's nothing wrong with drinking dirty river water, germs are a hoax, before he developed the symptoms of a waterborne parasitic infection and then promptly died. So when John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln, It's pretty much the equivalent of Barack Obama being assassinated by Liam Hemsworth, but also if Liam Hemsworth was somehow the son of Randy Quaid. So live theatre used to be a really big deal, and Shakespeare was an even bigger deal. Everyone knew Shakespeare. I mean, like, everyone. Some people would be able to recite the entire catalogue of the Bard word for word. Some people only know certain soliloquies, but... Everyone knew some Shakespeare. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said that aliens must think that humans are called Shakespeare's because of how much we mentioned him at the time. From upper-crossed Manhattan socialites to cowboys sitting around a campfire on the range, one of the most common pastimes of this era was reciting and performing Shakespeare. You have to remember that this is the 19th century. Stephen King is a long way off. 
William Shakespeare represents 90% of all entertainment anywhere. When I was researching this show, I found one account of a theatre troupe having their wagon captured by an Apache warband. The Apaches then dressed up in the costumes they plundered and attacked a nearby fort in character, which, if true, is the greatest thing in the history of humanity and it's all been downhill from there. We're under attack! By who? Is it the engines? Nah, worse, it's Oberon and Julius Caesar! So the important thing to remember is that in this period, Shakespearean actors were rock stars. It was common for people to follow their favourite actors like you would a football team. Actors had followings and they were hardcore. This era is pre-Netflix. There wasn't a lot to do back in those days. Your options for entertainment were essentially limited to watching an execution, joining the Navy, or pumping out as many children as possible to make sure some of them didn't die of cholera. Oh yeah, you could also go to the theatre. And if you did go to the theatre, you had to pick a side. Oh yeah, there were sides. For instance, Junius Brutus Booth Sr. had a rivalry with famed English actor Edmund Keane. When they appeared in the same productions, their supporters would sit on opposite sides of the theatre looking for trouble, presumably leaning menacingly against a wall while twirling a fob watch. Team Booth versus Team Keane, and never the twain shall meet. Violence was not uncommon. Just like English soccer hooliganism, you fought for your team. Booth vs Keane was like Man U vs Chelsea, or Liverpool vs Chelsea, or Millwall vs Chelsea, or Charlton vs Chelsea. Which brings us to the story I need, I need to tell you. An event known to history as the Astor Place Riot. On May 7th, 1849, English A-list actor William Charles McCready strode out on stage on opening night to star as Shakespeare's Macbeth. By May 11th, a Manhattan block was on fire, 31 people were dead, and New York's 7th Regiment militia were riding down Broadway wielding their sabers. How the hell did we get here? Well, that's going to take some exposition. I lied when I said I'd brought us to the story, I'm sorry, but that's how drama works. I don't know how much backstory I need to go into, or how much knowledge I can assume on your part, but if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to guess you have at least a passing interest in history, and you probably know that the United States of America and Great Britain have a bit of a complicated relationship. You're probably thinking of George Washington and the Revolution and Two If By Sea, etc., and that is correct. But more recently at this point was also the War of 1812, which was, in many ways, Revolution to Electric Boogaloo. In 1812, America invaded Canada. Well, technically it wasn't called Canada at that point, but it was Canada. Come on. In 1814, the British burned down the White House, and in 1815, the Treaty of Ghent was signed, and the war was resolved without anyone actually getting what they wanted, so all parties were essentially walking away blue-balling and looking for trouble. So by the mid-19th century, there's still a lot of friction between the Seppos and the Soap Dodgers, and it's that lingering resentment which makes up the stage for our story. Next, we need to meet the players. 
in the blue corner, representing the United States of America, Edwin Forrest. Born in Philadelphia in 1806, Forrest was bitten by the acting bug at an early age. Given that this was 1806, he was probably bitten by many bugs and various parasites, but acting took hold. He was performing amateur theatre from the age of 11, and at the age of 14, he made the life-altering decision to volunteer as a human guinea pig in an experiment on the effects of nitrous oxide, laughing gas. And, I mean, who wouldn't? Apparently, while under the effects of the gas, he spontaneously busted out some Richard III, and people were duly impressed. I'm telling you, this kid's gonna be big. You're gonna see his name in lights. He's a star, I tells you. Forrest auditioned for the Walnut Street Theatre. For the uncultured heathens listening, Walnut is the longest continuously operating theatre in the world. And from then on, he was a professional actor. Eventually, the great S-bend that is professional performance dragged him inexorably to New York, where his acting style centred around macho physicality, and it wins him the hearts of the working class in and around the Bowery. Edwin Forrest was like Brando before Brando, and his brash and bellicose style was seen as distinctly American, confident, loud, boorish even. Not like those soppy Brits. Forrest's machismo becomes something of a surrogate for the American national identity, especially the working class bootstrappers. It brings him fame and fortune and, like all working class heroes, makes him so far removed from the working class that it can only be measured on a cosmic scale. By 1837, Forrest is pretty much the biggest thing in American theatre. But as every actor of the period knows, America is a long way away from the action. The capital of the world, in a theatrical sense at least, is London. Being king of the hayseeds and rubes in the new world is one thing, but Edwin Forrest wants to beat the best on their own turf. So Forrest makes his way over to England to perform. And he does, alright. He might be the king of the hill in the USA, but in the big leagues, he's... adequate. You could even make an argument for good, but not great. But all is not lost for Edwin Forrest. While he's over there, he makes a couple of important acquaintances. The first is William McCready, one of, if not the, best actors in Britain of all time. McCready sees a lot of promise in Forrest, and he wants to help him in his career. McCready just likes building up the careers of other actors. He, he likes the, the art of acting. He's all about the cause. So he decides to take Edwin Forrest under his wing. McCready takes Forrest to social functions and balls and whatnot, and puts him in front of all these important faces, boosting his profile. If only we were all so lucky. The other impression that Edwin Forrest makes in England is on one Catherine Norton Sinclair, a 19-year-old London socialite and popular singer, the Belle of the Ball. She had seen Edwin Forrest perform and was instantly smitten by him. She arranged to meet him after a show one night, and the rest is history. The two were married within the year. I'll get Catherine Sinclair out of the way here, because she won't really come into the story again in a meaningful way, but she's an absolutely incredible person, and she's sort of the thread that ties all of this together. Sinclair was, by all accounts, an amazing woman. She was ferociously intelligent, uh, she was an excellent conversationalist, apparently quite attractive. 
she ticked all the boxes for the Victorian era. In short, she was incredibly good company and in high demand at parties. And because Catherine Sinclair was so incredible, it sets into motion a series of events that culminates in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I'll explain. Instead of being Edwin Forrest's wife, she began to outshine Edwin Forrest, and over the course of the next decade, both their marriage and Edwin's mind began to deteriorate. Everything came crashing down in 1849 when Edwin filed for divorce. He was convinced that Catherine was cheating on him with, well, with everyone. Forrest was a jealous and paranoid man at the best of times, and this was not the best of times. It was the worst of times. Oh yeah, Charles Dickens gets dragged into this story too. Stay tuned. Forrest and Sinclair's divorce was the biggest tabloid event in the history of the United States to this point. Two megastars having a vicious divorce. It was like Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston split up on steroids. Eventually, the courts found in Catherine Sinclair's favor, and Edwin Forrest went a little bit crazier. He challenged the ruling for 16 years. In response to this, and as a total fuck you to her ex-husband, Sinclair decided to become an actor and stage manager. And it turns out that she was pretty good at it. She became a Shakespearean tragedian and co-starred in many performances with none other than Edwin Booth of the Clan Booth. She would later acquire the lease to the Metropolitan Theatre in California, using her alimony money, and turn it into one of America's most popular venues. While she was the proprietor of this establishment, Sinclair hired her longtime co-star Edwin Booth, his brother, Junius Booth Jr., notably not John Wilkes Booth, but she also nurtured the career of one Laura Keene, the actress who went on to play the female lead in Our American Cousin, a performance which was interrupted by the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Laura Keene famously being the one that cradled Lincoln's head as he lay dying. So, if anyone believes in the butterfly effect, one can draw a direct line between Edwin Forrest's paranoia and the assassination of the Great Emancipator. Which neatly brings us back to Edwin Forrest and his paranoia. Now we go back to 1845, when Forrest was still married to Catherine Sinclair and the two decided to take a trip to her hometown of London. Forrest, at the height of his popularity in America, decides to give Britain another crack, and he decides to perform in direct competition to the hometown hero, William McCready. This is the 1845 version of a rap battle throwdown. Edwin Forrest appears as Macbeth. To Londoners at the time, the role of Macbeth and the actor William McCready were pretty much the same thing, Everyone knew that McCready was the best Macbeth. This was like trying to beat Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. It's already perfect, you're just going to fail. And fail he did. Forrest's Macbeth was not well received by London audiences. They heckled him, they booed him, they hissed. America's finest was booed off stage. Now, from everything I've told you, 
Does Edwin Forrest sound like the kind of person who would use this as an opportunity for some calm introspection about the fickle nature of the proscenium arch and divergent tastes between old world and new? With everything you've learned so far, what do you think he did? For everyone who went with develop a paranoid delusion and then have a very public meltdown, come on down! Edwin Forrest decided that it wasn't him that was the problem. He was a great actor. No, what had actually happened was that William McCready was threatened by Forrest and jealous of his talent. McCready had paid the audience to hiss at Forrest and sabotage his performance. Yes, that must be it, of course. The fact that McCready was Forrest's friend and had previously done everything he could to help him didn't enter Forrest's thinking. He waited until McCready's next performance, which happened to be a production of Hamlet in Edinburgh. He bought a box seat for the show, and he waited until McCready was mid-performance, and then he got up and heckled. Boo! Yes! That's some subpar Hamleting you're doing. Look, Polonius is behind the curtain. I, I don't know how you heckle Hamlet. Come up with it on your own. This did not go down well at all. The press were all over it. They were calling him a colonial bore. Forrest then decided to make things worse by printing a statement in the Times in which he did the Donald Trump apology of basically saying, I'm sorry if you were offended by my awesomeness. This went down even worse. Edwin Forrest's reputation in England was shattered irrevocably, and he returned to America somehow convinced that the entire United Kingdom was out to get him. Ironically, his ego and pride causing his downfall and self-destruction, in Scotland no less, is perhaps the most Macbeth thing that anyone has ever done. Edwin Forrest arrived home and he seethed. He brooded, and he seethed, and he plotted his revenge. Eventually his marriage broke down, his sanity unraveled. All that he had left was his revenge against the man that he thought wronged him. Which brings us to our second character. In the red corner, and representing the British Empire, William Charles MacReady the Younger! What is William MacReady's exciting background? What ribald tales of the intoxicating nature of fame spring from the life of one of Britain's most acclaimed actors of all time? What list of scandals linger behind the velvet curtain of William McCready's private life? Brace yourselves, here we go. He was born, he acted a lot, there was one incident in New York that wasn't his fault, and he died at an advanced age. That's it. That's all the polar opposite of Edwin Forrest. I'll try and flesh it out more, but dude was chill. Born in London in 1793 to two professional actors, William McCready was always destined to become an actor himself. By the age of 17, he starred in his first role as Romeo and quickly established himself as a gifted Shakespearean actor. He played lead roles for the next 40 years and he was always well-received. His portrayal of Macbeth was a particular crowd-pleaser. He developed a cult following in London. Uh, One of his superfans was none other than Charles Dickens, who wrote a letter to Macready in 1847 which gushed, The multitude of tokens by which I know you for a great man, 
the swelling within me of my love for you, the pride I have in you, the majestic reflection I see in you of the passions and affectations that make up our mi- It goes on like this. I am not going to do the whole thing, you look it up. It's not unusual for Dickens to ramble on, but this time he wasn't being paid by the word, and that's even scarier. Anyway, MacReady made several successful tours of the United States, and was equally well received there, except for the unfortunate incident of 1849. After a swan song performance of Macbeth in 1851, he retired. His first wife died shortly after his retirement, and in 1860, at the age of 67, he married a 23-year-old, and was by all accounts quite busy until his death in 1873 at the age of 80, presumably from exhaustion. That's it. That's the entire William McCready story. He was born, he spent his whole life being the best, he died in an advanced age from too much fucking. And what did William Charles McCready think of the Crips and Blood style rivalry between himself and Edwin Forrest? Well, he didn't know it existed. As with most obsessive craziness, it was an asymmetrical relationship. The extent of the trash talk on McCready's end was saying that Forrest lacked taste for shouting during a show. He didn't know that Edwin Forrest, his friend, had gone insane and turned into a supervillain. I mean, how could he? In 1849, William McCready embarks on his third and final tour of America blissfully unaware that he's sailing into a tempest. Perhaps the tempest. I have to assume that he played Prospero at some point. If Edwin Forrest wasn't crazy before, and he was, this was what broke him. William McCready, who he had built up in his mind as some sort of devious Iago to his Othello, arrived in New York the same day that the verdict was handed down in his very highly publicized divorce case. He lost his court case, his ex-wife got all the money, and his most hated enemy arrived in his town all on the same day. Edwin Forrest's subsequent meltdown is going to make Chernobyl look like Three Mile Island, and he is about to become the avatar for the seething ethnic cultural and socio-economic tensions simmering under New York City at the time. William McCready had been booked to star as Macbeth at the Astor Place Theatre. Astor Place was originally an opera house, but expanded into theatre due to the fact that nobody ever really wants to go and see an opera. Astor Place already had something of a reputation going into the events of 1849. It was specifically built and fitted out to be an exclusive, high-society venue. In other words, to keep out the riffraff. Without going into Manhattan geography, it was built in a place that meant that its audience could avoid mingling with the, quote, immigrants and lower classes, end quote. Astor Place had a strict dress code. It was uh, all clean-shaven faces and tuxedos and white kid gloves and top hats. Every caricature of high society that you've ever seen, that's Astor Place. On the same night that William McCready was booked, Edwin Forrest was also performing his own version of Macbeth a couple of blocks away at the Broadway Theatre. What a coincidence! Forrest was a regular headliner at Broadway, and he also played the Bowery Theatre. He uh, debuted there, actually. 
and these were much more middle and lower class neighborhoods. Thus, Forrest had become sort of the people's champion. These same people saw the exclusivity of Astor Place as an insult, and by transitive property, all of these factors came together. Edwin Forrest's enemy became the proletariat's enemy, and the stage was quite literally set for a class war. The workers hated the Tofts, the Americans hated the English, and the immigrants, especially the Irish, who were usually quite literally at war with the workers, I mean, go watch Gangs of New York, they all decided that while they still hated each other, they hated the English more. This attitude still holds true for most of the Commonwealth today. And now, all of a sudden, they had a single focal point at which to direct their rage. William Charles McCready. On May 7th, 1849, Operation No True Scotsman began. That's not what it was called, I just made that name up, but I think it's a good idea and I stand by it. Forrest's supporters bought hundreds of tickets to the Astor Place production of Macbeth. This is already some hefty commitment. These are working class people and those tickets wouldn't come cheap. This is a baller move. I mean, yeah, 50 Cent bought out the front rows of a Ja Rule concert so that the only thing Ja Rule would see was Curtis Jackson's smug face, but Fiddy is already rich. Buying out Astor Place was way more of a flex. Then the heckling began. The usual stuff, boos, groans, hisses, but then there was this distinctly 19th century vibe of shame, shame, and down with the codfish aristocracy, which, as far as heckles go, ranks right up there. There's actually some historical context to this insult, but I think it's way funnier as an abrupt non sequitur, so I'm going to leave it. This heckling was so loud and so sustained that it began to drown out the performers. But as any performer will tell you, you're prepared for the worst, and you don't let the hecklers win. So McCready and his cast switched over to pantomime. Your move. The pro-forest crowd then upped the ante. In addition to their heckling, they began to throw things at the actors. But what this crowd launches at William McCready is beyond the pale. It is like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, the amount and the diversity of objects that get thrown at the stage. A brief inventory of what was held at McCready includes apples, lemons, potatoes, rotten eggs, shoes, and what is enigmatically referred to as bottles of stinking liquid, which I'm sure we can all take a guess what contained. Then, as sort of the coup de grace, some punter walks up to the stage and hurls half a sheep carcass at McCready. Finally, when the crowd ran out of things to throw and animals to be slaughtered so that they could in turn be thrown, the crowd began to tear up the seats of the theatre and then throw that at the stage. So it was a standing throw ovation. I'll, uh, I'll see myself out. After this, William McCready calls it quits. He's 56 years old, he's on his farewell tour of America, he's getting too old for this shit. He's getting on the next boat back to London, where he is considered a sex god and doesn't have barnyard animals thrown at him, so fair call. But as he's about to get on the boat, he's presented with this petition, and it's signed by 47 luminaries of Manhattan, begging him to stay. And McCready decided to stay and finish his run. 
Now, you must be thinking, that must have been some petition. Well, it was written by Herman Melville, who had taken time out from writing Moby Dick, and Washington Irving of Rip Van Winkle and Sleepy Hollow fame. Melville and Irving wrote, quote, The good sense and respect for order prevailing in this community will sustain you on the subsequent nights of your performance. End quote. So McCready takes the stage again the next night, and similar results. Public respect for order is now way more fictional than a belligerent whale or a headless jockey. Things have been escalating for two days now. McCready's got one more night to perform. On the morning of May 11th, the New York police chief meets with the mayor and says, If shit gets real tonight, we don't have enough police to uphold order. The mayor responded with, In your professional opinion, what are the odds that shit gets real? And the police chief replies, Shit got real three days ago, bro. Oh. So the mayor calls in the army. The 7th Regiment musters at nearby Washington Park. We're talking Civil War era troops here with their muskets and bayonets forming ranks in a park. So why did they deploy at Washington Park instead of Astor Place? Well, because of the artillery and the cavalry. Now, artillery conjures up images of howitzers pounding away from a distance with high explosives, but in this area, it's more like four or five of what are known as six-pounders, the kind of cannons like you get on a pirate ship. Although I guess when you're defending a play with cannons, the distinction is largely academic. In Mike Wallace and Edwin G. Burroughs' book Gotham, A History of New York City, they mention that the army also deployed hussars. This isn't relevant to the story, but I think it's really cute how they talk up the home team here. Hussars were originally notorious badass Slavic skirmish cavalry in the 15th century. Other nations decided that they also wanted this badass skirmish cavalry, so they wanted hussars too, but without the cultural conditions that forged them. It didn't work. So when Wallace and Burroughs say that America had hussars, what they actually mean is regular light cavalry, but everyone is wearing a really silly hat. So between the army and the police, the Astor Place Theatre now has enough firepower to legitimately call itself a sovereign state. But this whole time, Team Forest hasn't been idle either. Firstly, like any good revolution, they started with pamphlets. You can find copies of these online. They, they are classic riot playbook stuff. In huge letters, there are things like, Who shall rule, Americans or English? And who shall dare to express their opinions at the English aristocratic opera house? And then in really tiny letters, we advocate no violence. Distributed at the same time as these pamphlets were a number of additional pamphlets and booklets with instructions that looked suspiciously like battle formations centered on Astor Place. It should be noted that the man who created and distributed these pamphlets was Edward Zane Judson, better known for his nom de plume, Ned Buntline. Ned Buntline was famous for writing westerns, the most popular of which was his fictionalized accounts of his travels with Buffalo Bill. Buntline is allegedly the man who gave Wyatt Earp his signature oversized revolver. 
uh, Clint Eastwood's character in Unforgiven was based on him, and he is the one starting the Astor Place riot. Buntline also scouted positions in which the mob would best be able to bombard police with rocks and other thrown weapons, and went so far as to establish supply chains and logistics to make sure that everyone had enough things to throw. So the pro-Edwin Forest crowd now has better logistics than the Carthaginians in the Punic Wars. By the time the curtain went up, 10,000 people had assembled outside the theatre. This time, most of the anti-McCready crowd had been screened out of the theatre itself, presumably through some test in which the audience members had to correctly set a formal dinner table or something, but enough infiltrators managed to make it through to heckle the show again and make sure that the, the whole thing devolved into a pantomime once again. Meanwhile, outside, there are 10,000 people in a violent protest trying to set fire to the theatre and everyone inside, but they're being repulsed by the police. It's sort of a back-and-forth riot protest situation, like you'd see in America today. Inside, the show actually managed to finish. William McCready, in perhaps the greatest bit of acting in his entire career, put on a disguise and actually managed to slip away through the crowd. With their quarry gone, the mob had turned even more feral, And it's at this point that the mayor and the police chief decided that they were about to lose control of the city. So they called the army in. Then the mob attacks the army. It should be noted that at this point the rioters are armed only with rocks and sticks and glass bottles while the army has rifles, cannons and men on horses with silly hats. Rocks are thrown at the army. The army responds with, hey, pump the brakes. Let's not go throwing rocks at people with guns. Nobody listens. So the troops fire a warning shot in the air. Again, nobody listens. So this time, the troops fire a volley into the crowd and dozens of people fall to the floor. And it's at this point that everyone decides, hey, maybe we've had enough for the night, and they all head home. Now to modern sensibilities, This might seem a bit extreme. Just one warning shot before lethal force was used? Actually, no. Given what is currently happening in the United States, a warning shot would probably be quite novel. But back then, you didn't have automatic weapons. You've got a musket. It takes you about 45 minutes to reload one of those things. There is plenty of time for everyone to reconsider their options. So the riot disperses and breaks up. And then the next night, there is another riot in response to the military use of force the night before. We have Astor Place Riot 2, Pig in the City. Thousands of people showed up and they demanded revenge. They wanted to uh, avenge all of their fallen comrades and whatnot from the night before. So the crowd assembles and they start marching towards Astor Place once again. However, They neglected to spend the entire day practicing how to operate as a spear and shield hoplite phalanx, and so this time they were very quickly dispersed by cavalry before anything could happen, because as it turns out, cavalry is really damn effective against a loose rabble of unarmed infantry, especially when it's riding down Broadway. When all was said and done, between 22 and 31 rioters were dead. 48 more were wounded nearly 200 police and militia were injured by thrown missiles. 
William McCready went back to England, and he continued being the world's best Macbeth for two more years before retiring undefeated. Ned Buntline was sentenced to a year in prison for instigating the riot. Upon his release, he headed into the Wild West, where his wildly aggrandized tales made him the highest paid writer in America at the time. His cowboy novels were later credited as the inspiration for the notorious highwayman The Wild Bunch, proving that if nothing else, Buntline had a flair for inciting violence. For Edwin Forrest, every day was the best day of his life, because every subsequent day was worse than the one before. His reputation, which was already tarnished due to his high-profile divorce, took a severe blow due to the riot, where he became regarded as little more than a thug. He did nothing to help salvage his image either. He was already the fodder of tabloids. The magazine Home Journal, which is currently known as Town & Country, suggested that Forrest couldn't stand being the intellectual inferior of his wife. The writer of this article, and proprietor of the magazine, was the famous poet and travel correspondent N.P. Willis. At some point after publishing this article, Willis was struck down with rheumatic fever and crippled. As he was convalescing in the sun in Washington Square, he was set upon by Edwin Forrest, who accused him of trying to seduce his wife. There's a theme here. Forrest then snapped off a tree branch and started beating the crippled Willis. He was later convicted of assault and his reputation suffered even more. Apparently, when you beat a cripple, and that cripple is one of America's most famous poets and a good friend of Edgar Allan Poe, you get bad press. Although Forrest continued acting, he was never again America's darling. He only ever played to parochial crowds in the working-class theatres. It took a lot for someone to be cancelled in those days. You can't be certain how many deaths it took, but between 22 and 31, and a further 250 wounded, that seemed to be in the ballpark. Back then, it wasn't uncommon for families in their photo albums to have a photo of their favourite actor, and after the riots at Astor Place, many of those photos were quietly taken out and never returned. Between 22 and 31 deaths, that seems to be the number you need to get cancelled. Or maybe one really big one. In 1865, the same year that Edwin Forrest developed malignant gout and was partially paralysed ending whatever career he had left, there was another actor who felt that he was, perhaps, unjustly living in the shadow of one of the great tragedians of his generation. Somewhat ironically, this actor cast himself as the supporting character of another Shakespearean tragedy, a character whose name his father and brother bore, a character his other brother played in the only occasion the three ever performed together, Marcus Junius Brutus, et tu, Brute. During a production of Our American Cousin, a play, ironically, about a boorish American failing to impress the English aristocracy, John Wilkes Booth, of those Booths, shouted a line never uttered by the real Brutus, Six Emperor Tyrannus, thus always to Tyrants, and assassinated the President of the United States. And photo albums across the country were again culled. As historian Dorothy Cunhart wrote, 
After the assassination, Northerners slid the Booth card out of their albums. Some threw it away, some burned it, some crumbled it angrily. End quote. And with that shot, so too died the cult of personality for actors. There'd be ups and downs, sure, there'd be fame and fortune and posters on walls, pictures in lockers, and crowds of screaming fans waiting at airports. They might worship their idols, they might call themselves fans, but how many, I wonder, would be willing to fight an army barehanded? Who is your favourite actor? And how many people are you willing to kill? These violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die like fire and powder which as they kiss, consume. Romeo and Juliet, Act 2, Scene 6